Well, if I can welcome up the panelists, Pastor Simon, Joe, and Brett. Michelle was going to be with us this evening, but sadly there's been a bereavement in their family, so she won't be joining us. But can we give it up for the panelists? So uh, microphones are coming. Thank you, Tara. That's very, very good. So I'm going to ask the guys to introduce themselves. They're going to say who they are and uh, what they enjoy doing, their area of expertise. And then they're going to share their favorite food with us. So um, over to you, Joe. Okay, so, um, so my name's Joe. I'm uh, an associate professor at the University of Waikato. Um, so from a pedigree or, I guess, academic background, I grew up and was born in Auckland, uh, then headed down to University of Otago to study, uh, did a Bachelor of Science uh, honours degree down there, and then a PhD, and I've been at Waikato for nine years now, or coming up nine years. Uh, favourite food, I'm a, I'm a real sucker for a burger, uh, very good burgers, uh, it doesn't matter if there's a special burger promotion, you know, McDonald's or you know, Burger King or something, they're running a new limited time burger, I'm, I'm there uh, every time unfortunately. They're always disappointing, I must admit, uh, you should usually stick with standard normal burgers, but uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely my go-to. Do the uh, microphone shuffle. Uh, yeah, so I'm Brett. Um, I'm a pastor at Southside Church as well as teaching up at Vision College. Um, a little bit of my background, I actually did a, a degree in science and physics. Uh, obviously, that has nothing to do with teaching leadership at Vision College, but that's my background. And uh, so, but I've also had, a, obviously, a, a keen interest in the scriptures and uh, looking at putting those two things together. Uh, favorite food? Uh, anyone who knows me well will know that my favorite food is... Uh, marshmallow eggs. Uh, it's a particular sort of marshmallow eggs. It's got to be the Cadbury's marshmallow eggs, which is probably why I look a little bit like a marshmallow egg. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens now that uh, it's no longer made in Dunedin. They're going to be made in Australia. So next Easter will be the test as to whether I stick with Cadbury's marshmallow eggs or I have to find a new favourite food. Oh, kia ora koutou. Um, I'm Simon and uh, I've taught at Vision College, it be 21 years this year, teach theology and biblical studies, um, minister in the Acts Church movement, um, and have studied in the area of theology after doing English literature up here at Waikato, so I've gone and done masters in theology. And um, unlike my unhealthy companions, I like anything with tofu. Um, no, not at all. Um, my mother's fried bread. My mother's fried bread is, is quite exceptional. Yeah. Very good, Simon. And, and I like lamb when I turn it on in the, in the oven. It's always helpful. You get the smell through the, the yeah. whole house. Well, a special welcome to this evening and a special welcome to our online guests. This event is being streamed live. I think it's the first event that we've done on a Sunday streamed live. So welcome to all those people that are tuning in online and hope you really enjoy your time with us. Uh, this evening, this uh, discussion, this panel, is about facil facilitating a family environment where we can discuss issues that Pastor and Simon and I may not even agree on what these guys are going to say. But we want to create an environment where we can hear different views about things, which is a safe place to discuss things. And um, I think it's really important because the world has changed so much, hasn't it? I think back to uh, 500 years ago with Galileo who proposed that the uh, earth wasn't the center of the universe, rather the sun was, and he was arrested on heresy charges and um, tried by the Roman Catholic Church and spent the last decade of his life in prison. So uh, you don't have to worry about that today. And, uh, but it is good to have discussions around these sorts of topics, and I'm, I was saying to Pastor Simon, I'm mindful of the movie Forrest Gump, and I like what Forrest said, life's like a box of chocolates, you just don't know quite what you're going to get. And uh, there are some things that we're certain of in our faith, and there are other things we just don't know. And I think it's important to discern what uh, and why, questions versus how. And so we all share the, the common belief that God created the universe, uh, and we share the belief why. How that happened, well, that's an interesting question, which we'll be hearing more about. So, so yeah, here we go. So, Simon, <clears throat> I would like you, if you can kick things off before we get into our questions is what is the 
theological perspectives on creation? Well, the, the, the um, Christian tradition down through the ages has held to some um, sort of some big rocks, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, some essentials. And the first is the idea that, that God is the creator. He's the source of all that there is. Uh, so the Apostles' Creed starts with the phrase, I believe in God the Father, uh, maker of heaven and earth. Revelations 4.11 tells us um, that thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and praise, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Um, J.I. Packer, great um, biblical scholar, says that the ho- you can sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase when you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of God the Creator. So, so the Christian tradition teaches that God is the source of all that there is. And that it was also an act of the triune God working cooperatively. So God the Father spoke. The Son of God was also involved in creation. We read in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word and all things that have been made have been made through Him. Colossians 1 also speaks about that. Um, and then also the role of the Holy Spirit in creation. So in Genesis 1-2 we read that the Spirit hovered over the waters. Um, the Ruach Elohim uh, bringing order out of chaos. And uh, Job 33 tells us that the Spirit of God made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So, so creation is an act of God, the triune God. Um, he created as a, a free will act of love. He wasn't compelled to do it. He created out of nothing. He, he didn't take stuff that already existed like some of the older worldviews of the time, which we might look at later. He created it initially very good. He, he created it good. Um, and when it came to creating the human being, it was said to be me'otov, um, or very good. So initially created good. And then probably in terms of the height of creation, human beings created in the image of God. And, um, and so it's that divine image in human beings that means that every human being has an inherent dignity or worth, um, regardless of race, religion, age, color, all human beings um, made in the image of God. So God is creator. He created all things freely, out of nothing. He created them initially good, and human beings bearing the image of God. Those would be uh, essentials carried down through the Christian faith. Great. Thank you, Simon. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to kick off uh, with the first question, and thanks for the questions coming in, some excellent questions. So the first question I have is, how do you think God created the universe? And starting with you, Joe. Sure. So... Uh, so what I'm going to talk about today, uh, I guess for some people might be slightly confronting from a perspective that they've grown up in the church with a certain um, mindset. Um, what I'm going to be talking about is uh, what I would consider the scientific consensus on how creation uh, occurred or how the universe came uh, into being. And just to preface that beforehand, um, what I want to say something is a little bit about how science works and operates. Um, and one of the overriding features of science is a term called consilience. Um, Consilience is a word that essentially means that we bring together an idea from multiple pieces of uh, separate information. Okay, so the, the best analogy I can give is if we were thinking about a, a murder trial, for example, or, or does it, you don't have to kill somebody to be honest, but a, a trial in court. Um, it's not often that you have complete, concrete, black and white evidence, you know, a video of the murderer doing a, a confession by the murderer, bystanders watching, and DNA evidence. Right? You don't normally have everything pieced together. Um, normally what you have is um, different pieces of information that point to a common direction. And so you might have uh, motive, uh, you might have um, you know, limited uh, uh, bystander evidence, uh, you might have uh, some DNA or, or something to that effect. Um, and so with, with science, we reach, I guess, scientific consensus based on this idea of consilience, that we have a number of different pieces of information that all point towards or are consistent with a particular model and how uh, things develop or are created. Okay, so that's, I just want to explain what scientific consensus is, um, and then I'll, you know, and then so let's, let's talk about the process itself. So, um, 13.8 billion years ago, uh, the universe came into existence. Um, from a modern scientific point of view, uh, we don't know what happened before uh, the universe came into existence. Uh, we have what we talk about as the Big Bang Theory to describe the process of uh, creating the universe. And what I need to be really clear about is the Big Bang Theory is a way of describing the way the universe is unfolded, but not necessarily the way that it started. 
Okay, so uh, in, a, in, a, in a sort of scientific understanding of the Big Bang Theory, it's a little bit misleading. It gives this idea that there was an explosion at the beginning, um, and that really wasn't the case. Uh, we started with nothing, uh, and uh, from nothing we created something, and that's that's problematic for science, right? If you, if, you know, there's a couple of chemistry students in the audience that I've taught before, uh, they'll know that I have uh, flogged them about, uh, you know, the famous uh, quote by Antoine Lavoisier, you know, nothing is created, nothing is destroyed, everything is transformed. And so this is one of the, the problems that we have right at the beginning of understanding how creation came into existence, is that we've got to go from nothing becoming something, okay? And I don't, I genuinely don't think we have a good answer about how we went from nothing to something. I do, however, think we've got a pretty good idea of when that took place, and I think we've got a pretty good idea about the process that it undertook. Okay, so the Big Bang Theory is really not how the universe started, but how we've watched it uh, unfold with time. And so what we, what we envisage is that at some, uh, oh sorry, let me back up. So the reason we get to this as a picture or an understanding is that we look out into space and we can see the fact that the universe is expanding. Okay, there's, there's a number of different pieces of evidence that show that the universe is expanding, it's getting larger, and so if you, you logically think something's expanding, it has to expand from something. Okay, and so that the universe started, uh, it, sorry, it's going through a process of expansion, and if what we do is track back in time, we can track back to the point, so if it's, exp if it's expanding now, if we go back in time, and we get back to effectively time zero, we must have had this point of an infinitely large mass and an infinitely large amount of energy. And so the Big Bang Theory explains the process of that infinitely large mass and infinitely large uh, energy expanding out to create uh, everything we see around us. Okay, that's the big picture. Uh, if we're laying that out in, in time uh, from around about, uh, so, sorry, and I should say, so our, our model of the Big Bang Theory works back to around about one femtosecond uh, so that's not, you know, you're seeing the Commonwealth Games at the moment, they're measuring things in milliseconds. You know, you go milliseconds, then a thousand times smaller is microseconds, a thousand times smaller is nanoseconds, a thousand times smaller is picoseconds, a thousand times smaller again is femtoseconds. So we think we understand from basically the beginning, but not quite. At that point, we had a huge amount of energy. We started expanding out, uh, and as that energy uh, unfurled, we then uh, created uh, first um, uh, protons and uh, neutrons uh, and electrons. Um, they were individual subatomic particles. Who remembers high school chemistry out there? I'm hoping those are words that aren't totally familiar and scary to, uh, to people. So we started with protons, neutrons, and electrons. They weren't really together. Um, we get out to about uh, 300, uh, 390,000 years uh, from the start point, and uh, that's when we started to form uh, nuclei for the first time. Uh, so hydrogen and, and helium nuclei, those are our two smallest atoms of the periodic table. And as we uh, go out further in time, uh, energy started to cool down enough that it allowed uh, electrons to associate around uh, nuclei, and at that point, uh, we started to form our first atoms, okay? And, and for most people, regular folk, uh, that's, that's kind of the point of the world around us. We think of things being made. I've got a, a bottle of water in front of me. I've got, you know, for every water molecule, I've got one oxygen atom and I've got two hydrogen atoms, and there's a whole bunch of them in that bottle. So once we get through to that point of creating uh, uh, atoms, we get to a point where we can start to consider the rest of the world, physical world around us, uh, and it starts to become a little bit more known and certain. Um, at that point, so we've still only got very small and very light uh, atoms. We've got hydrogen, helium, a little bit of lithium and beryllium. Uh, and then we start creating uh, our stars that are in the sky. And in stars, we have a process that takes place where they're effectively burning hydrogen and helium. And there's a process of fusion where those light elements uh, can stick together and create uh, heavier elements. So th these are things like carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus, oxygen, the sorts of uh, atoms that predominantly make up living objects. Uh, and in that process, we, we have uh, you know, various stars that are dying and being created, and, and they're really creating all of the different uh, atoms, the different heavy atoms that make up um, the world around us. So that gets us a bunch of atoms. Okay, so we're made of atoms. We've now made a whole lot of atoms. 
and then we get to um, a, a process by those uh, atoms uh, uh, conglomerating together, I guess, to start to create um, weird stars, and we start to also then create things like um, planets as well. And it's at that point we've got gravitational forces that are pulling these different uh, nuclei together, and sometimes um, we're forming um, uh, these different um, celestial bodies, uh, different galaxies, etc., that we know. Um, that's prob I've probably rambled as long as I need to for the big picture because I think we're going to move on to Earth and we can talk about that in no, a second. That's that, great, Joe. Is that a fair, fair summary? Yeah, no, thank you sure. very much. So what, what Joe has just expressed is a, a view that some Christians hold is called progressive creationism that started with the Big Bang all these many years ago. Um, my daughter teaches young kids, three-year-olds, um, and she told me the other day, uh, one three-year-old, she asked, so who, who made the universe, and this little three-year-old said, I did. <laughs> and then asked some further questions, and by the way, my dad made the moon. So <laughs> I thought it was beautiful. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Brett, would you like to share uh, a perspective? Uh, so we've got the, you know, the age of the universe, um, if we're taking it at 13.8 billion years, so an old age of the universe, uh, the contrasting view is a young age of the universe, and that's not young by my standards, uh, that's young by the 13.8 billion years. Uh, and so the young earth uh, creation model would say that uh, the, the creation happened in the literal six 24-hour periods of the creation week that we see in Genesis 1, and, uh, and would put the age of, of the universe um, at anywhere between 6,000 and... Uh, up to about 40,000 years. So, so there's still varying um, ideas within this young earth model, um, but we're talking about, you know, six to 40,000 years rather than billions of years um, old in terms of the, um, of the model there. Um, where do we get this from? Uh, well, of course, Genesis 1 gives us a bit of an outline of, of the creation week. And, um, and so we sort of say, well, actually, uh, you know, uh, no one sitting in this room uh, was around at the time of creation. Uh, uh, but God was, and so let's uh, you know sort of see what He has to say uh, about what we see uh, around us in the universe. And so we've got this creation week that happens. Um, there's a particular order that's given there, and uh, I think we'll have a talk about perhaps a, 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 an interpretation of the Hebrew word Yom a little bit later on. Um, but uh, Moses, who wrote down the first five books of the Bible, um, so we have the, those first uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we have those books written down. They're all written by Moses in around 1500 BC. Uh, so it's not like we have Genesis from thousands of years before. They're all around 1500 BC that Moses wrote it down. And we do know that from Exodus chapter 20, uh, when in the giving of the law, uh, that uh, there's a, Exodus chapter 20 verse 11, um, it just says that as God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, so shall man labor for six days and rest on the seventh. And that's where we get this term Sabbath. Uh, that's where it comes from. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to work for 12 billion years to get a day off. Um, but, uh, you know, so we've got this sort of creation week that happens. Um, we also see, I suppose, uh, coming through into the New Testament, uh, we do see Jesus, um, who was also around at the time of creation. Uh, we see Jesus in, in John chapter 5 sort of making the point that to the, the Pharisees at the time uh, that they should read Moses and believe him. And so we, we've sort of got that, uh, you know, that view there of, of Jesus even saying, well, actually, let's look at what Moses has written, and that should be um, something of our base. But what we need to understand, of course, is, as uh, Joe has pointed out, is we look at this universe that we're sitting in, and, uh, you know, perhaps the, the data that is presented to us doesn't necessarily line up with a 6,000-year-old Earth or a 10,000-year-old Earth. Um, and, but what I do have to point out is that the, uh, we have a, a range of data that is there before us, and it's the interpretation of that data that becomes very important. Now, two things that we're looking at from a young Earth creation model when, we, when we're considering the universe around us, we've got two big barriers that sit between us and creation. Uh, the first is the fall. So in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, uh, they, we, we have what's termed the core of the fall, which of course separates mankind from God, but the fall affected all of creation. So we see the universe as after the fall, after having been affected uh, in that way. We also see, and we're going to talk about the earth uh, in a moment, we also are looking at the universe post-flood. So we're, we're Noah's uh, ark, the flood in Genesis chapter 6, we're looking at this world around us 
um, after the fall and after the flood. So, so in terms of those starting points, uh, we've got to make some assumptions, if you like, as to what that uh, looks like uh, in order to, to look at the, at the science. Um, now, when we do look at the science, actually it only came up in a, at about 2015, uh, more research that, that's sort of happening, because we look, we look out and we can see, you know, sort of uh, the, this uh, 13.8 billion years, or we're, we're looking at the horizons, if you like, of the universe. Uh, one of the things that we do find at the horizon uh, is what we call the cosmic background radiation. Now, that's a bit like looking at a painted wall, and uh, we can't see beyond the wall. Uh, that's all we can see. One of the problems that we have with that uh, is that the cosmic background radiation is all the same temperature, uh, which means that it's actually been able to sort of, uh, a bit like two, two um, uh, bits of water in a, in a bathtub, a hot and cold, it, it has time to mix together and all becomes the same temperature. Well, that's actually a bit of an issue because there hasn't been enough time, um, even in 13.8 billion years, for that to take place. One of the postulations that's been put forth is that is the speed of light a constant? And Barry Setterfield did some work back in 1980 that said that between the time that we first started measuring light about 300 years ago uh, to recent times that the speed of light has significantly slowed down. Now that throws the, the scientific community into a bit of a, uh, a stir because the speed of light is a constant um, and yet could it be slowing down. Um, it just means, and of course there's two scientists even as late, you know, as, late as 2015 that are, that are putting that forth as a view as to why we see uh, this cosmic background radiation all at the same temperature. But what it does mean, of course, is that if the speed of light has significantly slowed down um, in the time since creation, then the age of the universe, those 13.8 billion years based on the speed of light, could be significantly lower. And uh, again, the, the scientific community is sort of going, well, what do we do with this? Um, and so it's not necessarily that, that they've come to some firm answers, but there are questions that are raised uh, in that regard as to the nature of this creation model. Great, thank you, uh, Brett. Just very briefly, um, there's a question that's come in, Joe and Brett. Um, how old is the Earth from your perspectives? Uh, the Earth or the universe? The okay, Earth. so... Um, so one of the ways we try and date and think about the age of objects, um, one of the ways you can try and do that is you can think about how old, uh, you can put, sorry, lower limits on how old things are based on what is the oldest thing you find on, on a planet. So our best estimates of the age of, the, of, of Earth is around about four and a half uh, billion years. Um, and so that age estimate is based on the oldest rocks that we find. Uh, it's also... Uh, rocks that we know came from Earth. It's also based on the age of meteorites that have hit, uh, hit Earth that have come from outer space, but still likely within our solar system. Uh, and it's also based on uh, rocks that have been collected from the moon. And those three sources of rocks uh, all have uh, uh, dates that are of the order of, uh, let's say, between 4.4 billion and 4.6 billion years old. Um, those uh, ages of those objects are based on dating, uh, the, uh, dating techniques in terms of uh, radioactive elements. So I talked earlier about how we form different elements, the heavy elements, uh, and so they're all formed in stars. Uh, and when stars go through a process of fusion, that can build together um, elements up to about iron on the periodic table for those chemists out there. Um, and once we want to get beyond that, regular sort of processes in stars can't, uh, don't have sufficient energy to make the heavier elements. And so those heavier elements form when stars collapse and when we create uh, supernova. Um, and so um, what we do is we end up with a series of elements. Um, and if we're looking at a particular uh, type of element, so if we take something like uranium, for example, um, uranium is uranium because it has a particular number of protons, okay? but it can have varying numbers of neutrons. And those are also found in the center of, uh, or they're found in the nucleus of a uranium atom. Um, now, those, um, those neutrons, um, you can have varying numbers of those in any given sample of uranium. And so you can have some uranium which has a total mass of 238. You can have some uranium that's got a total mass of 235, 234, uh, and, and so on. 
Now, some of those um, uh, elements um, undergo a process called radioactive decay. They will break apart uh, and they will release uh, different particles. And there are two different or three different ways that an atom, a uh, radioactive element, can break down. Um, it can emit either an alpha particle, which is like a helium a nuclei. It can emit a, a beta particle, which is like a, a positively charged electron. Um, or it can go through an electron capture process. Now, one thing that's really important to think about with these nuclear reactions is to get some sense of size, of scale, of what an atom uh, kind of looks like. Okay, so in an atom, you have a dense nucleus at the center where almost all of the mass is contained. And right out at the perimeter of the atom, you have the um, average position of the electrons. Okay, on, on that, so just to summarize, I'm just conscious of the need to keep moving. So you're saying about four and a half billion years for the Earth? Yeah, sorry, can I just yep, finish sure. on that? The, the important point, though, is that those nuclear... So if we're putting it into scale to, the, to a real-world example, it would be like the size of a, a grain of, of uh, rice in relation to a rugby field. That's how the nucleus is the grain of rice at the center and the electrons on the outside of the rugby field. Okay? Now, the important point about that is that those nuclei are so, so far into the center of the atom that they can't actually, processes that involve them in decay processes can't influ be influenced by temperature or by pressure or by any other external uh, uh, um, uh, process. And so when we observe um, processes of decay and we watch these alpha and beta particles being produced, they do so in a very consistent time fashion. And based on that decay process, uh, we talk about a half-life of that uh, object. And when we observe certain isotopes of those uh, elements in these rocks, these very old rocks, um, we can then work backwards and determine how old that rock must be based on the ratio of the different isotopes that are contained in it. Great. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Joe. That's wonderful. So, in summary, the Earth's about four and a half billions. Yep. Uh, um, Brett, in, in 20 seconds, can you share with us how old you think the Earth is? <laughs> sure. Um, very easy. The Earth is exactly two days older than the universe. How's that? So the Earth was created uh, on day two. The, the rest of the stars in the sky, the heavens, was created on day four. Uh, and so the Earth is, is uh, uh, two days older. Um, and um, and just, uh, just, just to, to talk to that, I mean, in terms of de determining the age um, within that of what we see, uh, we've got to assume a certain starting point. Um, as I say, we're looking through this lens that we have of uh, post-flood, post-the-fall, the nature of the universe as we see it. And so while the science is actually very, uh, very good in terms of you know, what we see as the age uh, in terms of rocks and, and uh, radioisotopes and, and that sort of decay, um, we've, we've, got to, we've got to assume a starting point. And so that becomes, that's where the, the debate happens in terms of then how old things are. For instance, um, uh, there was a, a lava flow in Hawaii, 1801. We know when it happened. Um, and dating the rocks that come from that lava flow um, gave dates between 1.6 million and 3 billion years old um, based on current standards. And you go, well, we know it was actually 1801 when that was fixed in place. And so we've got to be aware that while the science of measuring these things is very accurate um, and is very good, um, we've also got a number of assumptions about what the starting point is, the half-life, if you like. Uh, when did that become fixed? What was it when it got fixed? Um, what other uh, things could have been happening there uh, that we don't take, take into account? Thank you very much, uh, Brett. So, Simon, I mean, this is fascinating. You know, Joe's a very learned person, brilliant scientist, you know, presenting the universe as 13, 14 billion years old, the Earth is four and a half billion. Uh, Brett's view is a younger Earth, maybe six to 10, 40,000 years. I, I guess it's a real struggle, isn't it, for Christians who are taught that uh, the, the universe was created in six days and then go to a tertiary education and here the Earth is 40, 40, uh, 14 billion, or, or the universe. And some very good questions have come in. Is the Bible telling the truth is a question. And so I think it's a good question to actually ask, and is our interpretation here, does it need some deeper analysis? So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, Simon. Um, as people of faith, we, we, we believe that the Bible is God-breathed. That's one of the words that Paul used to describe it in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore useful for teaching and rebuking and helping us uh, in a life of godliness. And, and one of the things that I think we would all agree up here is that God is a God of truth. 
And so that would be one of the things that we would consider. I suppose then it comes down to interpreting. That's, that's a key thing. So, and, and who knows that we can all interpret what people say differently. So people can say something, but we can interpret it. And uh, would this be a place to discuss the literature? So, so an, an, another approach might, uh, that, that some Christians have to Genesis 1 is that, they, that, it wasn't a, that it's not a scientific treatise or a historical uh, document like des- describing the kings, um, but actually it's ancient Near Eastern literature that was written for a purpose. And, and part of that purpose was to show um, God as, as, uh, as creator and, and, and created with purpose. And so there's a, a view called the literary framework view, which, which shows the idea that, that in the beginning, uh, in verse 2 of Genesis 1, it says that the, the earth was void and empty. And so what we have with the six days of creation is a structure where in the first three days we have forming and in the second three days, we have filling of that creation. So, so in day one, we have God forming the lights. And in day four, we have a parallel of the creation of the planets, or, or sorry, of the sun and the moon and the stars. In day two, we have the forming of the water below and the sky above. And in day five, God fills that with birds of the air and the, the creatures of the water. In day three, um, there's the forming of, of dry land and vegetation. And in day six, God fills that with livestock and wild animals and human beings. And if you contrast that with the worldviews of the time, uh, that's where we start to see the, the, the Hebrew teaching coming through. So, for example, uh, the Mesopotamian uh, story of the Enuma Elish taught that the god Marduk killed Tiamat, tore her body in half. One half became the earth, one half became the sky. And, and the Hebrew Teaching says, no, in the beginning, God created. He didn't kill any monsters. Then, in terms of human beings in the Enuma Elish, uh, Kingu was killed, and they took his blood, and they mixed it with clay to create humans because the lesser gods were sick of doing all the drudgery and the slave work, and they wanted someone else to do it, so they created human beings to feed the gods. And the Hebrew idea comes along and says, no, human beings weren't an afterthought. They aren't slaves. They're created in the image of God to be stewards of creation and be in a relationship with God. So it's combating a different worldview. So, so, so another way to look, to, to look at it for some Christians is the idea that this, was, this is ancient Near Eastern literature written to show that God created with a purpose, with order, with human beings as the height of creation. And so it's not a scientific treatise, rather you need to see it as ancient Near Eastern literature. So it's another approach. And um, Simon, could you also give some insight around the word day to interpret that in Genesis 1? Yeah, that's probably and, and again, this is, it's a great question, Pastor Ray, because again, that comes to interpretation. What does a day refer to? So, so you've heard the guys refer to old earth or young earth or literal 24-hour uh, days. And so, so basically it comes down to how do you interpret this Hebrew word yom? Yom is the word for day. And so those who advocate an old earth, uh, the billions of years, would say that it, it speaks to a vague period of time. Um, and so support for that would come, for example, Genesis 2 verse 4, it says, in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. Well, in Genesis 1, we've just had six days, but now it's referred to as happening in a day. So, so how does that work? So that, that would be one idea. Another would be that sometimes it refers to a vague period. So the day of the Lord or Proverbs and Psalms talk about the day of adversity or the day of trouble. Again, not a 24-hour period, but a vague period of time. And then probably another argument that old earth advocates would use is the idea that when we come to the seventh day, the Sabbath day, we don't have a phrase that says, and there was evening, which sort of gives the idea that that seventh day might be ongoing. So again, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a longer period of time. Those who talk to the idea of it being a literal 24-hour period would point out in Genesis 1 that um, we have phrases like, and there was morning, there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So, so in Genesis 1, they would say, well, that, that seems to point to a 24-hour period. Um, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, the word yom appears with a number, seems to be referring to 24-hour periods. And then Brett used probably another key example is in Exodus 20, where creation is used as a model for the work week. So Exodus 28 to 11, for those who are taking notes, talks about uh, for six days you will work, and on the seventh day you will rest, 
just as God created the heavens. And, and so, so there, that yom seems to be referring to a 24-hour period. So again, it comes down to how people interpret that phrase, and then they bring that interpretation to Genesis 1. Thank you very much, Simon. So some interesting thoughts to summarize that little bit of a discussion, an old earth perspective with strong science to back it, a, a, a young earth as well with science to perspective. And I think the, the interpretation, as Simon has highlighted, there is a key aspect of it. But I guess the thing is too, we can get caught up in the how, which is an interesting thing, but the, the real key is the what and the why, isn't it? Um, here's a good question that's come in. Uh, Joe, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Um, so we've heard about young earth, old earth. Uh, what about the dinosaurs, and how do they fit into this whole thing? Sure thing. So Watch Jurassic Park. That'll help <laughs> you. <laughs> um, and if we, sorry, if I can just say this, if we can keep sorry. the responses to about three minutes sure. max, if that's okay. I'll, I'll go, for, go for that, sure. Um, so I had the privilege, I've been in Canada for six months prior, I had the privilege of um, actually wandering around and seeing a lot of these fossils, uh, dinosaur fossils in situ. Um, it's a phenomenal experience. You can learn everything about how old something is in a textbook, and then when you're wandering around the Badlands in Alberta, um, it becomes really apparent. You get a real um, innate sense that you know, this stuff's old, and, and it, it kind of all comes together. Um, so scientists would say dinosaurs um, are between about 250 million and 65 million years old, and that's a, not a, a range of age guesses, but that they lived for that period of time. Um, we've got distinct uh, eras uh, in terms of that. Um, we date the age of dinosaurs. Um, they're, they're actually very challenging to, to date um, because dinosaur fossils are found in sedimentary rocks. Um, sedimentary rocks themselves don't have direct um, markers that we can use to work out how old something is. They are very good at relative ages within a layer of sedimentary rock. You can, you can make certainly some um, uh, estimates in terms of something being older than something else, but not necessarily a hard date. Um, the hard dates come from uh, layers of volcanic ash uh, that we tend to find that uh, between different uh, regions of sedimentary rock. Um, those volcanic rocks can be dated uh, and can be dated quite accurately, um, again, using different um, radiometric uh, techniques. Uh, so, and uh, an important point with those radiometric techniques is that when we're using these half-lives, um, and so a half-life to explain is the time taken for um, a half of the element to decay. Right, so you started with 100, it's how long it takes to get down to 50, and then how long it takes to get from 50 down to 25, and then 25 down to 12 and a half. Um, one thing that's very key with that is you choose a, uh, a ruler uh, that is of an appropriate length to determine how old something is. Uh, so if you think something's of the orders of hundreds of millions of years old, you're going to use a radiometric uh, technique that measures things in the realms of hundreds of millions years of years old. Um, it would be inappropriate um, to use something like carbon-14 dating, which we'll probably touch on later, I guess, um, because that measures things that are much younger. Um, similarly, uh, some of your uh, uranium dating deals with things that are of the orders of billions of years old, and so you've got to be careful that you're using the right tool for the right job. Um, my best analogy would be if we were trying to measure uh, the size of something on this table, so if we took one of the... Um, one of the licorice all sorts, it's got a certain sort of size. Um, you, could, you could reasonably use a 30 centimeter ruler to measure how big that is and you'd get a fairly accurate number. Um, if you used um, a, a kilometer length object to try and measure it, that would give a really inappropriate or a high error uh, estimate in terms of that. Um, if you wanted to um, try to do it with a micrometer, something you measure the width of a hair of something, again, it would be an inappropriate tool to measure the size of that object. And that's one of the things, and, and I would suspect is the issue that Brett raised earlier with the um, Hawaiian volcanoes, was simply using the wrong tool for the wrong job, uh, and you end up with a date that doesn't make any sense. Um, and from that point of consilience, you would throw away that data point, and you would come back with a different technique to try and remeasure. Great, thank you. So it must have been fascinating walking through the, the dinosaur fossils, Joe. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm so can you just, I mean, I find this fascinating, don't you? I mean, to walk through fossils... Um, not, not old people. Um, <laughs> Simon, turn around. <laughs> I'll keep on track here, Joe. So, sure. so walking through fossils uh, um, of dinosaurs, so what sort of dinosaurs did you walk amongst? 
Um, so where we were in Alberta is um, the richest area for the Cretaceous period. So those are um, your um, Albertosaurus, which comes named from the state of Alberta. Um, I have to admit, I never knew that until I was wandering around looking at a gift shop in Alberta where there were an enormous number of Albertosauruses. And I went, oh, that's why, you know, that's where the name came from. Um, so it's, it's funny, those, you know, those penny drop moments. Um, so a range of sauropods as well, um, you know, a huge, huge diverse range of different, um, different fossils, and they're literally everywhere. Um, you know, we went on a couple of different sort of safari guided tours, and I remember one point we're walking to what was the interesting site, and we all stopped because there's this huge bone sticking out of some sedimentary rock that there's been some erosion on, and everybody's stopping to look and touch and be all, uh, you know, excited by this. Uh, dinosaur fossil, and the guide's like, no, 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 come over here, that, that's, that's really boring, over here's the interesting stuff, and you think, you know, in New Zealand, that would be the pinnacle of Te Papa, right, if we had that rock, that, that fossil, and it was just like an everyday, oh, you know, that's not very interesting, come have a look at these ones, yeah, sure. um, they're much better preserved. Great, thank you very much, Joe, wonderful. Uh, Brett, do you want to share about dinosaurs? Yeah, so, so, uh, so dinosaurs, again, for the young earth um, creation model, dinosaurs um, obviously needed to be um, formed on day six along with the rest of the, the land animals, so that's, that's when they came about, um, which also means that they're coexistent with mankind. Um, and the, again, sort of getting into, um, I, I suppose, you know, the debate about uh, dating something. Uh, one, of the, one of the forms, just to, to, to throw in there, one of the ways of, of dating is to use um, lead as, uh, not just uranium, but lead, um, the half-life of, of lead as it breaks down. Um, and you sort of, um, you know, you've got to be careful because if we use that same uh, view in here, about two-thirds, if, if I said I, I had a calculator that could t tell your precise age in this room, and for about two-thirds of you, uh, that seemed to be accurate. I don't actually ask your age, so I don't know whether it's accurate, but I say, well, it actually seems to work out all right. For a third of you, it would say that you haven't been born yet. And so you sort of go, well, we don't like that data, so let's just shift that to one side and we'll focus on the data that does help us uh, in this area. And so we've just got to be careful that, you know, I think the, the radioisotope dating... Uh, Again, we've, we've just got to have a, a healthy view of, of perhaps uh, a mankind that doesn't know everything. Um, in terms of dinosaurs, uh, a couple of interesting ones. Um, uh, one, the Paloxy River Plateau, uh, which was discovered not so long ago uh, with the, the fossilised dinosaur tracks. They, they trudge through the mud and that dries and then the sedimentation or the, the sedimentary rock hardens. And, and so we have you know, tracks of dinosaurs. You go, that's pretty exciting. But what's even more exciting is that there are tracks of humans in there as well. And so, you know, it's not, once it's formed rock, you're not going to create tracks. And so we actually have um, uh, footprints discovered of both dinosaur tracks and humans coexisting. Uh, one other example to give you is um, up at Angkor Thom in Cambodia, and actually I, I've had the privilege of being up there. Um, in some of the, the, the bas relief, the carvings that are there for a temple that was built in around the 12th century, um, there's a, a carving of a stegosaurus. And you go, but the Stegosaurus wasn't actually discovered, or at least the fossilised remains of a Stegosaurus wasn't discovered until 1867. How did they know in the 1100s what this looked like? A lucky guess? Yeah, maybe. Uh, so, but we've just got, we've got evidence that suggests that um, humans and, and, and dinosaurs were coexistent. Why did they die out? Well, there happened to be a, a pretty big thing happened a few thousand years ago called Noah's Flood. Uh, and uh, as an extinction event for a, for a lot of dinosaurs, and then through um, the, a major climate, uh, climate change after that, plus the predations of man, uh, we see the dinosaurs dying out. In the last 500 years, we've had 320 species ex made extinct, uh, mainly through the, the work of mankind. And so uh, to sort of think a, a few thousand years ago where um, major climate change the, the uh, spread of mankind uh, to, to wipe out some of these dinosaurs is actually reasonably plausible. Thank you, Brett. There's been many, many questions coming about the dinosaurs. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get through all of these, but can I encourage you um, after our discussion this evening is to speak to uh, each panellist about them. Um, Simon, does the Bible mention dinosaurs? Um. There are references in Job to the behemoth who has a tail like cedar that lies along the ground in Leviathan. Um, some would go, they're mythological creatures, but it's alongside descriptions of other creatures that we 
we have today as well. So, so, that, so, so those who, who purport to the existence of dinosaurs alongside human beings sort of point to those references in the latter part of, of Job. Right, yep. okay. We're going to have to wrap things up. There's, there's so many questions that have come in and so many more things we could ask, but I think one of the important things is when you start to talk about how, it always turns into an interesting discussion. But the discussion's interesting to have all the same, and I think it's important to have, whether you know people take an, an old earth or young earth view. But the, the critical thing is that we all share our faith that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, which we all share together. But one final question I would like to leave with you, um, and if I can ask for your response on this, is what do you think God had in mind about belonging when he created the universe and mankind? If you'd like to kick that off, Joe. Yeah, that's, a, that's an, interesting, it's an interesting thought, I guess. Um, you know, belonging's the focus that we're, uh, we're dealing with this year in terms of one of the values of this church. And I think, you know, humans do have an inherent uh, sense or desire to want to belong. Um, we like to be grouped in uh, with, uh, with others. Um, I, I suppose you see a similar behavior in other animals. We have heard animals that like to really exist in groups of animals rather than separate. And so perhaps that concept exists um, throughout the biological um, kingdom. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think there really is a, a, a specific hard sort of scientific perspective uh, on it. Um, I think one thing we've got to be conscious of uh, is that there, there are things that matter for salvation and there are things that don't. Um, and I, I genuinely don't think, like I'm, I'm a scientist through and through, I'm 100% convinced that the, the, the world is old, uh, the earth is old. Um, but it's not going to change whether I go to heaven or not, right? It's a personal relationship with Jesus that that's the relevant um, part in this. Um, equally, I, I wouldn't want people to find that when they try to belong to other organizations, right? So they go to a university and they start learning about some science and they find that that science doesn't line up with their interpretation of biblical scriptures, that that causes them to no longer belong to either the church, right? They walk away from their faith uh, because you know, the house of cards falls down, one of the pieces falls out, um, or, or similarly that they feel isolated and alienated from their scientific peers because, you know, there are no other Christians around them because they've had to adopt and, sorry, um, yeah, so that they're either not, not within a scientific uh, sort of sense of belonging or, or within a, a sort of faith um, sense of a belonging. Um, for, for, for reference, if it's a helpful fact, so there's about 60 academic staff in the um, uh, School of Science at the University of Waikato. Um, there are seven Christians that I know about. Um, we don't talk publicly about these things, um, but you know, through various informal conversations you know and you discover people are Christians. Um, you know, the three geologists, a, a chemist, myself, a physicist, a, and a biologist. Um, and um, you know, so we come from a variety of different science backgrounds and we all still have a, a strong and, and committed faith. Um, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Great, Joe. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that the, um, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of not just creation, but uh, why are we particularly here now, you know, in terms of belonging, that, um, that we actually see the answer to that in Scripture. Um, if you, if you want to sort of look at both the, the, the purpose of um, creation, uh, who we are, uh, as well as the way of salvation, then uh, the beginning p part of Ephesians chapter 2 um, gives us those answers. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it says that, we, um, that we're saved, uh, not just created, but saved, uh, that in the ages to come, God might show us his manifold, the, the manifold riches of his glory and grace. And so uh, we, God, um, we were separated from God through the fall, um, Jesus has, of, of course, um, uh, mended that separation, and if we accept uh, his offer of, of the payment for our sin, then we can come back into a relationship with God. And, so, and we get to enjoy him uh, throughout eternity. We get to spend an eternity um, unpacking um, the marvelous God uh, that we know. And so God designed creation so that he could spend the rest of eternity uh, with us, and as I say, Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 would point to that. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say, uh, when we talk about creation, it has a lot to say on the who, the what, and the why, but the how and the when. There's, there's, there's not so much there, and that's where the, the, the difference of, of opinion and interpretation comes in. Um, 
at this point, I'd just like to share, there's a thought that I really like from a, a, a 17th century German theologian, Rupert Maldinius, and he says, um, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. And I really like that. Um, so what it means, in essentials, unity. So for us as Christians, there are some ideas that are important and you need to stand strong on them. Jesus is Lord. We're saved by grace through faith. Salvation comes through Christ alone. God is the creator. Uh, pe all people are made in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect. Those are essentials. Um, and so we, we cling to those. But in non-essentials, liberty. And, uh, you know, so an example of that in the Bible, Paul points out that there's some raru raru between people. Some say you can eat meat and some say you can't. But Paul says, well, God justifies you both. It's, it's not an essential. Joe's point about a, a gospel or a salvation issue. Um, should you wear a suit to church or jeans? Should worship be performed with a guitar or an organ? Now you might go, oh, those aren't important. They've been pretty important for a lot of people down through the ages, but, but the Bible's not clear on them in terms of gospel or salvation issues. So in non-essentials, liberty, give people the freedom to be different. And then that last one is, is in all things charity, and, and, and love is the key, you know, as we used to sing in that old song, to everything we do. First uh, Corinthians 13 starts with that wonderful verse, I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have not love, I'm a resounding symbol, a clanging gong. If I could um, know all prophecy and fathom all knowledge, uh, if I could have faith that move a mountain, but have not love, I'm nothing. And so love is an absolute key. And so... Uh, I think, you know, when, when I think of the kaupapa of what, what uh, Pastor Ray was wanting to do here, you know, Brett and I, I work with Brett, he's one of my closest mates. There are some theological issues that we differ on, that, that, that we, 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 we don't have the same opinion on. They're not major, and we still break KFC together. He's my brother. Um, uh, Joe is, is, is a man who I have the utmost respect for. Love him, love his family, wonderful man, you know. Um, and so the thing is we can have these differences of opinions, and still be whānau, and, still, and still, still love one another. So, so you can think something different to me, I can still love you. Um, and, and if I can, Pastor Ray, just to finish on, on your point in terms of belonging, what God created us, what does that mean? Well, the triune God, you know, the Father eternally loved the Son, the Son eternally loved the Father, and He created the world to share something of that, to invite us into that love and life with Him. Um, and so, firstly, belonging is about us and God. You know, I, I love Augustine's words, you know, where he says, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. There's, there's a sense in which we, we just don't find fulfillment outside of God. We've got to belong to God. And being made in God's image, we, we're social creatures, and we're, we're called to belong to one another. Um, and, so, and so that's part of it. Us to creating communities of love in which God's kingdom can come and his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. We were made for interdependence. Um, and so we were created to belong to God and to one another. And our lives have, because we're created in the image of God, our lives have purpose. Our lives have meaning. Uh, the world loves to separate us into us and them and those people and other people. Uh, but but the gospel is about drawing a circle that draws people in and learning to love all people. So, and that's why God sent his son to save us when we were lost, that he wants us to belong, to share life with him and with one another, with each other. And so I think that's, that's the absolute key. Can I just say something, picking up on the us versus them thing. So, so I'm a chemist, right? So I know chemistry pretty well, um, but some of these other subject areas in terms of creation, which is the in full expanse of science, required me to read quite deeply uh, around the subject. Um, what's really clear, if you look out on, on the internet or you, you look into different sort of um, sources of information, um, the us versus them that exists isn't science versus the church. It genuinely isn't. The us versus them that exists is between me and Brett. Unfortunately, you look at the vast majority of resources that exist there on the internet that are trying to talk about what is creation and what's going on, it's young earth arguing with old earth. Science genuinely doesn't care what the church thinks. 
right? It's, it's just not interested. It, it's, it concerns itself with what its observations of the world are and trying to come up with explanations and, uh, um, you know, ways of predicting phenomena, etc. That's what science is interested in. It's not waging war with the church. But I do think there's a civil war that's taking place in the modern church, particularly the modern Pentecostal churches, about whether you have to believe in a young earth to go to heaven or whether you have to believe to, in an old earth uh, to, to go to heaven, right? There seems to be we're having some internal civil war conflict, which is doing us a lot more damage than actually looking at the sort of um, you know, genuine scientific uh, position. Um, for, for example, of, those, of the seven you know, scientists that are at the university, all seven believe in an on old earth, right? The, the scientific community, I think, is very, uh, very strongly in the camp of an old earth, but we're having this argument that's probably distracting us from our focus on God and our worship and our relationship with him. And so I think we want to be really careful when we have these sorts of conversations that we're doing so in a constructive manner. Um, we're not doing so because we're trying to prove that one person is smarter than the other. Um, you know, if we pick up that background radiation point uh, that Brett raised earlier, you know, that's, the, that's why somebody got the Nobel Prize, right? Because they discovered it, and that was the conclusive smoking gun evidence that this showed that the Big Bang Theory was accurate and that the world was 13.8 billion years old. But Brett and I seem to disagree on the interpretation of that, right? And that's, I think that's a problem, right? I think it's a problem when we're having these sorts of arguments and dialogues and we're not, focused on, we're not focusing on our relationship with others, we're not focusing on saving other people, we're having a scrap about, you know, who thinks they're smarter. And I, I, I don't mean that literally with me and Brett, right? This is, we, we get on well, but this is a separate issue. Um, but you read some of the websites and you, you read, you know, Answers in Genesis and then noanswersingenesis.com. And, you know, they just go backwards and forwards arguing uh, constantly. And it's not, it's, it's genuine. It's not science versus the church. It's two warring factions within the church. So that's a key thing for you, isn't it, Joe? That to be able to have a, a climate where people can ask questions, there's no fear and that we can do those things in Farno. That's a key point for you, isn't it? That, that, that's right. I and mean, it's one of the things that I was really um, keen when you know, Ray talked about this, um, that we could have a conversation and a dialogue. Um, what, what I'm afraid of is um, the millennials, the, the young of our church, they grow, up in, uh, they grow up in a Pentecostal church like ours. They're taught the six literal days. They get to university. The shackles of being around their parents start to come off a little. They start reading, and they start becoming convinced by some of the science that's presented in front of them. And what I'm afraid of is that they start being confronted by that science, and it is the house of cards. The card pulls out, and their whole faith collapses because they start saying, well, if mum and dad were wrong about the six literal days, you know, are they wrong about the fall? Are they wrong about the flood? Are they wrong about Jesus? Um, and we start to, you know, have our entire faith collapse because of one key uh, sort of component. And I think having a broader sense, um, perhaps being able to say, well, Genuinely, it doesn't matter, and if, you know, if science has that view, that's, that's fine. Um, you know, we're going to go in, in a particular direction, but to say that, that, that it doesn't actually impact my, my faith or my relationship with, with God. Um, one, one final comment in that space. If you, sorry, let me have two final comments in that space. <laughs> I'm that kind of person. I always run lectures that run long. My two, two comments in that space. One is that, actually, if you look at most of the traditional churches, they're, on the whole, they're old earth churches. You look at the um, position of the Catholic Church or the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, but if you look at the modern Pentecostal churches, they're predominantly in young earth creationism. So that's thought one. Thought two, um, my, my real challenge or struggle with this is that I believe in a God of truth, right? It's one of the characteristics that we believe of God. And if I look everywhere around me and the world looks really old, right, there are two conclusions I can come from that. One, the world really is old, right? That's one of the conclusions I can come to. Or two, God made the world look really old so that I would be deceived. And I really struggle with the concept that there is a God out there that would make the world look old, that all of our different scientific techniques would make the world look old and that I would be deceived and, you know, think of some other kind of a arrangement or, or scenario. It's, it's inconsistent with the character of the God that I know. Great. Thank you very much. Panelists, wonderful conversation. Isn't it good to have the conversation out there? And um, yeah, let's give them a hand. <laughs> this evening is not about modeling agreement between one person or another, but actually modeling a conversation.
And that's what we want to embrace, that wherever we are on the perspective of these things, we do know what matters, and that's faith in Jesus and our salvation in him. And that these things, we can hold different perspectives, and that's fine. And we can carry on the conversation. So I want to invite you to carry on the conversation with them. But I think we should let the final comments um, be from the Word of God this evening. And so Psalms 19, verses 1 to 3. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. And Hebrews 11 verse 3. By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Isn't it wonderful to anchor our faith in what God has done? Why he has done it so we can live to glorify him in all that we do. And that simple command, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Let's give it up one more time for the panelists. Thank you very much. You've done a wonderful job. Really appreciate your input. Thank you for coming and being part of this. I'm sure this won't be the same or the last such conversation. And we look forward to that. Thank you for those that have been online. And uh, why don't we conclude with a song and thank you. Let's give it up for the youth band one more time too. Thank you very much.